This morning, our scripture reading is Acts from Acts chapter 2. Um, we'll be, begin reading in verse 42. But while you're turning in your Bible, I want to say a few things before we get to our message this morning. When I was um, in 1995, my first uh, church job, I had done a lot. I'd led retreats and taught Sunday school and all sorts of other things, but this was an actual on-staff job. I was a youth minister at First Baptist Church in Petal, Mississippi, and uh, my pastor, Paul Strahan, said something to me. He said, uh, Tim, he said, now, adults, if you do something for, for them, they'll appreciate it, and, and, and they'll like you, but if you do something for their kids, they'll love you forever, and uh, you know, I didn't really get that at the time. I was 21 or 22, <laughs> Wasn't, didn't even have kids yet, um, really didn't get that. Uh, but as my children have grown, I began to understand that. And so when we found ourselves in a situation um, a while back, my girls, well, it was the spring of their junior year, and uh, we found ourselves without a, a youth minister. And so on top of as a pastor thinking, oh, no, here's another search, here's another, you know, going through all that stuff on top of it. It's just as a dad saying, hey, man, my girls, what are they going to do? Youth minister's gone, and they're about to be seniors. No way that some new person is going to come in and they're going to connect. And uh, the Lord provided um, an in-house solution. And so, um, Becca, along with Jerry, have been um, leading our youth, and the relate, they didn't have to get to know a new person because those uh, relationships were already there and um, didn't start loving these two. Um, they've been special to me for a long time, but uh, maybe even a little more. And I just appreciate so much uh, what Jerry and Becca have done with all of our kids. One other thing I'll say about these, uh, uh, this group before we move on, although I'll have a, a few things in particular during the message, I could be wrong, but I think this is the only group that's ever uh, going to have gone through and been as a group in our youth ministry for seven years, um, or maybe eight years. Anyway, we went through a really, that, they're the longest ones, because we went through a very strange group time where we didn't have a lot of youth, and and they entered into youth at like fifth grade. So they've been waiting for this moment to graduate our youth group for a long, long time. So we're proud of you, uh, graduating seniors. All right, Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. And, and by the way, we're here on the day of Pentecost. This is 50 days after Passover. Uh, Jesus has just ascended, that is, after after he was resurrected, he spent about 40 days appearing to uh, some of the believers and teaching them. And then in Acts chapter 1, he ascends, he goes back into heaven. The early believers, they gather together. And on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover, they're gathered together all in one place, 120 of them. This is not all the believers, but 120 of the early believers uh, a very large chunk of them was gathered together in prayer, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them, 
and and amazing things happen. I won't even go into all that, but you know they they um, they get out there. They begin speaking in unknown or tongues, known tongues. Excuse me, tongue. These languages that different people from all over the world say. How in the world do do they know that our languages? Because because of it was the Feast of Pentecost, people were making pilgrimages from all over the world back into Jerusalem. And they hear their native tongue, their native language being spoken. So it gets the attention of this huge crowd. Peter and the other apostles start preaching Jesus as Messiah. They tell the story about how he came and how he was rejected, how he went to the cross according to God's plan, how he died for the sins of all mankind, and, and how he rose again. And the people, they were, their hearts were pricked. They were cut to the, the very core. And they said, what must we do? And he talked to them about putting, repenting and putting their faith in Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that about 3,000 souls came to be added to the church that day. That many people were born again that day. And this scripture will we pick up. Uh, in verse 42, is kind of from that point on, what did things look like after that? So, in verse 42, talking about the early believers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in a temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are the same God. We thank you that Jesus is the same Jesus, and we thank you that your spirit is the same spirit. And so the same power that birthed the old, that resurrected Jesus, the same power that birthed the early church, is the same power at work among your people today. And God, you desire to do amazing things. You desire to work. You desire for your people, filled with your spirit, to be unleashed in this world. And Father God, we just pray that today as your people, uh, we would be uh, your instruments. That we would listen to you and open ourselves, repent of our sins, and, and let ourselves be fully devoted to you. For your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are a number of miracles in Acts chapter 2. If I was to ask someone to say, Acts chapter 2, where are the miracles? They might stumble at first, and then I say, oh, now what, what's Acts chapter 2? And I say, well, you know, it's, it's Pentecost. And oh, yeah. Well, that was the coming of the Holy Spirit. And that'd be, you know, the, the first miracle that most people... You know, they'd remember the coming of the Holy Spirit and, and these, these, uh, tongue, these flames that appeared like tongues over people's heads and the miracle of these people, um, you know, hearing in their own languages. You know, th they would hear that and uh, most people would talk about that miracle. And then if I said, well, what else? 
What other miracle? Well, then a few others would say, well, 3,000 people were saved. Now, that is a miracle. All at once, 3,000 people being convicted by the Holy Spirit and their, their lives being transformed. That is a miracle. And it certainly is. Uh, every time someone is born again of God, that is a genuine miracle that we often do not recognize. A miracle is taking place in our midst. But I'm going to tell you, um, there is another miracle going on that I think very few people uh, would really understand. And that is the miracle of verses 42 through 47. You see, I entitled this uh, sermon, Pictures of the Early Church, or a slideshow of the early church, just like we saw that slideshow of the seniors and kind of looking back, and we all get a little teary-eyed thinking about, you know, from when they were little bitty chubby-cheeked babies and all along the way. Um, this was a throwback, by the way. Luke wrote this book of Acts for people to go back. This was a couple of decades or more after the beginning of the Christian movement. And he wrote it for a friend, and he, I'm sure he knew others would read it, so they could know the, with accuracy the truth of the things that were being written. So this is kind of their version of a slideshow, a throwback to the pictures of the very early church. And here's a very interesting thing. A lot of the stuff that we see in the book of Acts, uh, it was big-time major players uh, doing things. Okay, Peter and James and John and, and, and Saul and then Paul and Barnabas and all these big-name folks. But every once in a while, uh, it's like the camera kind of zooms out and we get a broader picture of here's what every day Joe and Sally and Sue and Bob in the church, here's what church life looked like. And sometimes that was good, sometimes that was bad. Lots of times it was good, though. And see, here's the thing. We just take for granted that verses 42 to 47 that we just read, we take it for granted that it was good. But I want you to just step back from that, the way we've always read Scripture, and the way we've just kind of accepted that's the way it went. And I want you to imagine a typical church that ran 120 people. Our church happens to many Sundays have 120 people, give or take a few. Now, I want you to imagine in your mind, if I was to say to you, hey, We've had a big open-air revival, and guess what? I mean, it was like this. We were having the tour of homes in Columbus, and people just happened to all come through. There was a ton of people, and 3,000 of them got saved. And we would all be going like, amen, that's awesome. And then we would start thinking about it. Oh, what are we going to do with 3,000 people? I got 3,000 people I got to order Sunday school literature for. I mean, I got 3,000 people I got to disciple. I got to teach them what Christianity, what Jesus following, what this is all about. I, I, I got to, I mean, 
you can't even imagine the number of things. I mean, we do good when we get a family comes, joins the church to kind of make sure that they fit in and they learn the way our church works and learn more about Jesus. And, and we do our best and, and they may come a family or two or three at a time. But 3,000 people all of a sudden, that could have been a nightmare. Humanly speaking, it should have been a nightmare. It completely should have overwhelmed the early believers. And yet it didn't. Somehow, those 3,000, instead of overwhelming the 12 apostles, or even if you want to include the 120 believers that were gathered together, or even if you want to include the extra few hundred, you know, we know there was several hundred believers because the Bible tells us that, you know, Jesus once appeared to a group of about 500 after the resurrection. So let's just say maybe there was a thousand total believers before Pentecost. If you added 3,000 to 1,000, that would still be overwhelming. How can this be explained? Well, it's certainly a miracle. It is a miracle that we do not, not acknowledge when we talk about the miracle of God's Spirit as the people are gifted with His Spirit and, and they speak in these languages where people can hear and the miracle of God's Spirit as people are saved. There is also the miracle of God's Spirit as His church comes together. And Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that is a miracle because it is a direct work of God. And so that must be acknowledged. But we do have to, ask, that's, that's the first thing, we got to say that. But we do have to ask ourselves, was there anything in this beautiful picture that we get of people fellowshipping and worshipping and, and, and getting along and enjoying the favor of, of people and, and of them sharing and, and just this wonderful picture that we read about in the early church. Is there anything, humanly speaking, that at least might have helped all that come about? And the answer is yes. In verse 42, it tells us that there were four things that the early believers devoted themselves to. And let's just read those real quickly, and then we'll go into each, each one in detail. Verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. Okay. Four things. Now, how did they know to devote themselves to these four things? Did God write it in the sky? Did he give them a dream? You know, did uh, Philip have a little new member class where he taught those four? We don't know. But all we know, whether it was a direct message from the apostle or it was just something that, that the Spirit imparted to their hearts and they knew, Luke could look back as a historian and he said, I can identify in the early church there were four things. Okay, and he's remember, he's giving glory and credit to the spirit of God first, and he continues to do that. So he's not saying this is a man-made thing, but 
after acknowledging the Spirit of God and the power of God through His Spirit, he says, I can identify, though, cooperating, working with the Spirit of God. There are four things that we see that the early believers do. Now, I know this. We've never seen the world turned upside down the way that we saw in Acts. So while there's not necessarily a commandment that says, hey, you got to do these four things all in one place, we do actually see these four things being taught to us in Scripture in many, many places. And if Acts says that these four were the things that the early believers in a crazy, mixed-up time concentrated, I think that's a great thing for us to focus on and concentrate right now. As we're going through the whole coronavirus thing, I think for those of you who are, who are graduates and beginning a career, those of you who are graduates and, and beginning a further stage of your education, these are, and you say, everything's crazy, I'm getting all of these different inputs and, and these voices from everywhere telling me what to do. How do I know I'm going the right way? How do I know that I'm walking in the truth? You know, and, and there's, what, hundreds of thousands of Bible verses. How do I know? What are some things I can really focus on? Here's four things for all of us, for any age or stage of life that the early church did, and I think it's a pretty great pattern for us. The first thing they did was devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The New Testament, you know, we carry around in this nice little binding. Some of us might have leather. Some of us might have hardback or paperback. But we carry together all this stuff, and we call it the Bible. Um, you know, they didn't have that. They had some scrolls from the Hebrew Scriptures. And then the New Testament had not yet been written. It was the apostles' teaching, which would later make its way into the New Testament. Their interpretation in the light of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection of the Old Testament. Now we can see clearly how God was moving in ways we couldn't understand before through the Hebrew Scriptures. And, and now we see his plan for the church. And, and so today, um, we're so blessed. I mean, we can pick up this verse, this, this, this book and we can read it in all kinds of different translations, uh, in different styles, at different reading levels. I, I mean, we are, we're kind of spoiled rotten almost in terms of the availability of the Word of God to us. And, and not just physically, but we can get electronically. Man, they had to actually go somewhere and show up and listen. Now, a lot of you I know right now are saying, I wish I could go somewhere. Well, keep that same appreciation for being able to go somewhere when you're able to be right next to, ne next to your brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, sitting in church buildings once again. But, I, I, you know, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Uh, so, number one, if I have a, a core thing that I want to do in my life, I want to devote myself to learning uh, through what God has said. I, I, I want to hear his word in my life. I want to soak my brain, uh, my thought processes. I want to filter everything I have uh, through the lens of Jesus and his teaching. Number two, 
to the fellowship. Now, that, that's kind of odd for us today because most of us in modern, cult, modern Christian culture in America, when you say fellowship, uh, we're talking about um, Nana Pudding. You know, we are talking about somebody's special green bean recipe or somebody's favorite casserole or whatever. I mean, we're simply talking about uh, good old, especially in the South, good old country cooking. And I'm all for that. Okay, make that clear. But fellowship is so much more than that. Fellowship... um, means that, that we are all sharing, that we have things in common, that we walk together in our faith. You know, one of the things um, as Protestants that, that we focused on and made really clear is that you're not a Christian because your mama is a Christian or your daddy is a Christian or your grandpa was a Christian or whatever, and, th- and that's a great distinction. We all needed to get that. But sometimes the pendulum can swing so far overboard that we kind of think that we can be a Christian all by ourselves. And the matter of fact is, is that God never intended us um, to be Lone Ranger Christians. He never intended us to walk through life separated and pushed aside from other Christians. And, and, and some of us now, you know, what we're having to do alternative things, electronic things, but we're starting to understand um, how difficult it is when we're not experiencing the fellowship. That is the togetherness. But I'm going to say, honestly, in this country, there's a lot of people um, who name the name of Christians who are not feeling anything different. Now, they may be feeling difference in their work. They may be feeling difference in their paycheck and in their social life, but they've called themselves Christians and have abandoned the fellowship, though, of faith. And they've, they've forgotten what that even is like. So they're not experiencing uh, any of those pains of longing for belonging. It is so important that we come together as believers, that we are, because you know what? The, the Bible tells us that we have the enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And by ourselves, we are so easily picked off. But when we are together, walking in step with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we have so much encouragement, we have so much connection, we have so much um, so many folks that remind us of things and who we are and what we should be doing. Several weeks ago, um, a friend of mine has been a friend since high school and in college, and, and he's a minister also. And he sent me a message, a, a private message, by the way. You know, uh, so he handled this exactly right. He sent me a message, and, and he said, Tim, man, I've been enjoying all those, those Bible studies that you've been doing and, and then all the music, um, you know, that, that your girls have been doing, and, and, and a lot of encouraging things. But he, but he put one line in there, and it wasn't ugly at all, but he, he said this. He said, remember to share the gospel. And I'm going to tell you, he hit me hard with that. 
Because when we first moved into this online thing, you know, I was thinking about church members, believers needing to be encouraged. And, and, and absolutely, we all as Christians need to be encouraged. But I wasn't thinking about the fact that there are people out there who happen to turn on YouTube uh, or Facebook or whatever, and they're wondering and they tune in, and somebody out there doesn't know that Jesus Christ died for their sins. That we're all sinners in need of a Savior. And they don't know that Jesus died for their sins on the cross and that three days later he, was, he rose again. And they don't know that he died so that they might have eternal life. And that gift is for all who believe. And, and so since, since he sent that message to me, it's just hit me. You know, I, I've been more conscious and more aware the fact that when I preach and teach God's word, I, not every message has to be about how to get saved, how to be born again. But I need to be aware that there are those who don't know Christ and they need to hear that message. And you know what? All of us can learn. All of us need those reminders and those encouragement. And so fellowship, rubbing up against one another. We don't do much of that physically right now, Right? But I, I, I'm talking about symbolically the, the mix of believers, even when sometimes they get on our nerves. And yes, I can acknowledge that from the pulpit. We still have our own personalities and quirks and differences. All of that God uses to make us who we are. So Luke, who was writing this uh, Book of Acts under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit said, hey, they devoted themselves. They committed themselves to hearing the apostolic teaching, to the fellowship. They committed themselves uh, to being connected with other believers. They committed themselves, uh, third, to breaking bread, to the breaking of bread. Now, uh, that's an interesting concept. People so to the breaking of bread, now, why, were they, why were they doing that? What, what special thing was going on with bread being broken? Well, uh, breaking of bread um, had to do with uh, eating together, and more specifically in the Christian context, uh, sharing in the Lord's Supper. Now, in those days, um, that wasn't quite so separated as it is now. The early church, and even um, this kind of continued for several hundred years until some folks said, this stuff is getting too wild, we're just doing away with it. But they had these things called love feasts, and uh, not as wild as it may sound, but these things where people would come and it'd be full-on, big meal, but also uh, it was a Lord's Supper all in one. And um, so, you know, you look at the, the scholars, and some of them say, hey, this was, this was simply the Lord's Supper. Some of them talk about, no, this, this was people getting together in their houses and eating and fellowshipping together. And, and some other scholars say, no, it was answer C, including both of those. I'm probably going with that. But it, it was the idea of um, the Lord's Supper is a special part of the Christian life that reminds us, first of all, constantly reminds us of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and the fact that he's coming again. And uh, it reminds us that Jesus' presence is there, 
that it reminds us that we are communing with him, we are bonding with him, but it reminds us also that we are communing with one another. You know, Jesus tells us in John chapter 17, he prays that as believers will be one just the same way he and the Father are one. That is his desire for us. And then the fourth and final thing, and to prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. I believe that is far different than I bless my food before I eat, and at night I say, now I lay me down to sleep. This was a commitment to a life of prayer. This was a commitment to understanding what we set up at the very beginning, and that is without God's power, none of this works. The whole Christian religion is based on a miracle, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If it's not, then it's just a system of ethics or morals. And we can all debate those things and come up with our own systems. But if it's based on the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he promised that once he left, he would send another miracle, the Holy Spirit of God, that would work, then we better pray and we better ask God that his will is done in our life and that his spirit empowers us to live and act the way that he calls us to live and to act. So prayer is not a last resort. Oh, I've talked to people, I've took some pills for it, I've, um, you know, I've written it down in my diary, I've dwelled on it, I've fussed about it, I guess I better pray about it. That's what a lot of people do. But that's not what God has called us to do. He has called us to be a people of prayer. He's called us to pray that more workers would be sent out into the field Because that harvest is white. It's ready. He's called us to pray for one another. He's called us to pray for his kingdom to come. He's called us to be uh, people of prayer. And that is a commitment and a devotion. So if, if you're wondering in all of this craziness we're going on in life, if you'd say, Pastor Tim... What are, what are four priorities that you could recommend out of all the thousands of good things that I can do? I could say, well, these four, they work pretty well. There's proof that 3,000 people that could have actually overwhelmed and destroyed the early church instead were integrated into a beautiful picture of loving and caring and learning and serving and reaching out and of God continually adding daily more people being saved as they lived out and shared this message of the gospel. Devoting themselves to that teaching, breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. I think that's a pretty good list of things for us to be devoted to as well. Now, in a moment after we pray, the praise team is going to come up and they're going to sing. And this is the time in our service where if we were if we were physically meeting in this building, it it would be the invitation or time of commitment or altar call, whatever you want to call it. But it's basically that time to respond to what God has been doing in your heart. 
And, and also, because we're taking communion right afterward, um, it's the time for you to make sure that you're right with the Lord and, and that um, you're right with other believers. Examine your heart in this time and, and be ready to receive um, communion and be ready for God's Spirit to work in your heart. Let's pray. God, we come to you. Lord, we're so thankful. We're so grateful for all that you are, all that you've done. Father, that um, we just get an opportunity to be a part uh, of this amazing movement of yours called the church, the body of Christ that has grown and touched lives uh, for over 2,000 years now. God, we just pray now that you would uh, continue to work in our hearts, draw us to you, convict us, show us where we need to change. Build us up, comfort us where we are hurting. Do whatever it is that you need to do in us right now to make us more like your son, Jesus. And in his name we pray, amen.